Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobana Xavier, and I'm one of your co-hosts of this podcast. I hope you are safe and well wherever you are, and thank you so much for joining us today. Today, I'm joined by Murray Hogben, who's one of the leading figures in the history of Islam in Canada and the author of the new book, Minarets on the Horizon, Muslim Pioneers in Canada, which has been published by Munsey House in 2021. The book is an incredible archive of some of the early Muslim settlers in Canada. Hogben collected oral histories by conducting interviews of early Muslims and their descendants from the east to the west coast of Canada. Be they settlers from Syria and Lebanon or Punjabi men who worked in timber mills of British Columbia to those who migrated later in the 20th century as a result of the changes to the Canadian immigration law, such as South Asian Muslims, Hogben captures the trials and tribulations of migration and the difficult process of adapting religious and cultural practices as minorities in a new nation state. Central are the voices of Muslim women, such as Hilwi Hamdoun, who led the way to building the first mosque in Canada, the Al-Rashid Masjid in Edmonton, while stories of interreligious friendships abound through the early formation of Muslim communities across the Canadian landscape. This is an important book that adds a deep texture to our understanding of the history of Islam in Canada and will be of interest to anyone who thinks and writes about Muslims in Canada and in the global West generally. In our conversation today, Murray and I spoke, uh, spoke about how this project came to be, some of his own active role in helping the development of Islam, particularly in southern Ontario or Toronto area, We also spoke about what the process of collecting the oral narratives was like and his encounter with Malcolm X, who he met um, in the 60s in Toronto and much more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Murray Hogben about his new book, Minarets on the Horizon, Muslim Pioneers in Canada. Hi, Murray. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for um, your time today. How are you doing? Hi, Assalamualaikum. I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, fine. Yeah, that's good. Um, so you are the author of a new book, Minarets on the Horizon, Muslim Pioneers in Canada. Before we get into the book, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you and how what led to writing this book and all of that great stuff. Well, okay. Um, I, I, I was you have to get a, a, a kind of a time a timeline on this. I was born back in 1935, so I'm now 86. So that when I started, when I became a Muslim after meeting my future wife at university, she was an Indian Muslim, uh, uh, and this is in the mid-1950s. And I uh, came from a Scottish-Canadian background, and uh, so Islam was uh, something very... I'd never heard of it. I mean, it really, I've mentioned... In the book that it was uh, Muslims was kind of a an odd name that somebody picked up as kind of loser somebody else you know Muslims or whoever knew I'd never met any until I met Arya and then um, as this kind of strange romance kind of worked out eventually she said well there's no use you falling in love with me because you're not a Muslim I said well what's that you know and uh, so then when she told me and explained it to me. I so thought that's that's I, that's what I'm looking for. That's great. Um, you know, it's not the white man's religion. It allows you to you know the single God, the acceptance of the prophets, uh, makes serious demands on you. I mean, things like prayers and fasting and so on. But there's this wonderful brotherhood of multinational or, or multi-ethnic uh, history and you know architecture and everything. I, I just fell right into it. Uh, and I've been in it ever since. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was maybe a little rather long answer to the question, which I've probably forgotten now. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, but you also have this interesting background in, I think, interest in history and journalism as well. So you yeah. have a, a professional career that I think has that's also right. informed some of the work that you do in this book. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. Re- it didn't really come about because I was just busy 
um, being a Muslim, my wife and I in, in Toronto back in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, I became the secretary of this fledgling, really small group called the Muslim Society of Toronto, which was basically an Albanian organization. Uh, but people like myself and my wife and a scattering of graduate students and so on, who were kind of more devotional, let's say, than the, than the Albanians who tended to be kind of nationalists. I mean, Islam was really the background, but not their principal thing. Whereas we were interested in, you know, getting together and being Muslim and saying prayers and uh, maybe having a, some kind of place to do it. Uh, and this very youngish community of, uh, of, of new scattered people or, or mixed people. And so, but we're busy doing things rather than thinking about it, but it wasn't until the 1970s when a whole series of books started coming out uh, on the, you know, the Poles in Canada and the Greeks in Canada and the Lithuanians in Canada, whatever, uh, that one of the people with a group that I was associated, it was kind of a national organization called the Council of Muslim Communities of Canada suggested, well, why don't we do a book on Muslims in Canada and sort of instead of being silos of ethnicities, this was kind of a, a, a transverse thing with all the multinational people who made the Muslim community of Canada. And again, when so I started this in 79 and on a rather small grant, traveled across part of Canada, not all of it, interviewing people for a book that was basically going to be, you know, a social and economic sort of study of Muslims in, you know, circa 1980. But, uh, and I worked on some of it, but because I didn't have any kind of professional backup to this, and I was a notoriously bad typist, and I couldn't, I mean, I put in or I typed in a certain amount of this stuff, but in 2011, uh, a bad man burned our house down, and that took the computer and the paper notes and all the little tape cassettes, everything went. But my clever son-in-law was able to find in cyberspace uh, in, you know, say 2012, the people that I had put in. And then I saw, ah, I've got something different here. With the grace of God, I've got a, a kind of history because some of these people, uh, their stories and their lives go quite a long way back. And it gave me the idea that maybe we should do something on the history of Muslims in Canada and the pioneers, and I particularly use the term pioneers specifically in this case uh, as, as kind of 1967. I mean, not only the year of Canadian Confederation, but the year that the immigration laws, which previously were frankly rather racist in Canada, were finally replaced with something called the point system. So that it meant that, you know, what skills you had, you could come into the country. It wasn't just the you know, you weren't just being barred as being not the right color, not from the right country. This way you said, all right, if you can speak English or French and you've got some skills, abilities, you can do something with the country, then uh, you're going to be relatively more welcome, uh, which was the case because before that, really since the late, even in the mid 19th century, the very first, uh, what we call Syri Syrian or Syrian or later Lebanese, uh, or other, a few other Balkan people started to trickle into the country, becoming peddlers and going across the country uh, with no language skills, no, but nothing but a kind of a pack of, you know, buttons and bows and ribbons and things that they could sell to farm wives and so on and uh, trailing across the country in rain and shine, snow and everything else. So the people who started coming in after the or be, just before in, in the 1960s, and certainly right after that, then they started to mount hugely in numbers uh, because the point system allowed then a lot of uh, particularly educated South Asians who had been basically excluded because until then, the, uh, the, the, there was a quota of, I think, 150 Indians, and that meant Hindus as well. So the number of Muslims coming in, but we were a very small tiny mixture of people, uh, you know, 100 Pakistanis, 50 Sinhalese. I mean, it was uh, a very racist uh, background. And so they started letting in all these other people. And then you now got this burgeoning of community of Muslims in Canada, which I'm hoping this year's, the 19, or the 2021 census will 
probably show that we may be close to a million and a half Muslims mm -hmm. in Canada. Whereas when I became a Muslim in the mid 50s, um, I think there were about 5,000 Muslims in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in, and when we started this little Islamic center in this little uh, uh, sort of former leather workers storefront shop, uh, you know, we put a couple of sheets down and that was enough to say for the, for the people who were saying their prayers. So I come at it from this way back, as it were, uh, and sort of built on this, this history. And then we, so then I did, ended up doing a history of, of Muslims in Canada, or a kind of a random, but it was the voices. I wanted to hear their voices. So as people scattered from, you know, in the major cities, so they tend to be urban uh, people, although not all. There are some farmers, particularly out west and Swift Current and other places out there in the provinces out west. But basically, um, I went to a number of cities, and so I strung together like a kind of string of pearls, uh, a series of interviews with varying numbers of people going from one coast to the other, uh, some thinner on the ground than others. But I managed to find, with a lot of luck and help, uh, the, you know, some people who are the really, you know, virtually the first Muslim in Montreal or the first Muslim in, you know, and wherever, uh, and what it was like being just a tiny handful of people. Uh, and so that's what I've got. Is that's why I've, is, the, is the minarets on the horizon, which was the uh, the title suggesting you know that there are minarets coming up. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, in Canada, there's thousands of mosques and and centers and associations and everything. But starting back then, even when I sort of got into it in the uh, mid to late fifties, I moved to Toronto in fifty eight. I started looking for people there. And again, you know, it was one, two, three, four people. It was that kind of thing. So anyway, then now we're a, a large number and quite diverse and quite varied and uh, quite interesting, I hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the book does an extraordinary job centering the voices of some of the first Muslims um, in Canada. And um, what was that experience like for you traveling and interviewing folks? Like, was that scary? Was it hard? What were some of the challenges? Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't scary or hard, but I mean, I, I again through this uh, uh, Council of Muslim Communities of Canada, which was basically representing all of the then, you know, two dozen maybe Muslim groups across the country at all. Um, it wasn't, but because I had contacts, and so I would go to, uh, you know, City X, and and then would find out the you know, the president of the association, or whatever, and then they would put me up for the night and or two nights, and I would interview a variety of people, men and women, for a rather different book. I'd say it wasn't a history then, it was just a kind of contemporary, who are these people? And if we get some history, that's fine. But yeah. that's just about people then, and it turned into a history perforce later on. But it was very interesting. I mean, it's nice visiting. I mean, I am a actively kind of, you know, happy Muslim, as a happy soldier kind of thing. Uh, and so visiting other Muslims was great. And I visited various people and recorded their stories and then would move on to another one. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I say it only covered some of the country. I got the West fairly covered uh, again in a minimalist kind of way. And then a bit in the Maritimes, but I had missed whole areas. I mean, much of Ontario, except for Toronto, where I was living or where we were living, uh, although I knew people in other cities, but basically there was nothing much in the rest of Ontario, let alone Quebec or anything else. Mm -hmm. So that I started in after 2012 to uh, rebuild or at least add, add invoices and get people on, see what, what happened in your community, what happened in your community, what was it like? Where did you come from? Did you, were you were born here or who, where did that, you know, going back in history, that was my aim was to always sort of, go back to the roots if I could. Yeah, and I think this is exactly what you've provided us, has given us an archive that hopefully more young scholars and students can pick up and you know tackle yeah. if they want to focus on Toronto more or British Columbia or Nova Scotia more, they could you know build upon that. So I yeah. think this it, is amazing. It, inshallah, people will pick it up. I mean, I, I'm just sort of scratching the first, the surface, you know, suggesting what can be done, but I'm sure 
scholars who've got you know money and time and graduate students in universities behind them. Because basically, I've done all of this just on my own, mm-hmm. except from that initial grant. It's just been uh, me and the uh, laptop, you know, yeah. and the telephone. <laughs> That's amazing, though. I think it's fantastic for that reason. And you've given us such an important a gift and, and a resource. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who the first Muslims in, in Canada would be and what they would have like what they would have been entering in terms of the landscape? You know, of course, indigenous communities were there, but they would have had to uh, either build relationships or try to figure out their place in this in this landscape they're settling into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, the well, the first re- recorded, and we owe a great debt to the uh, recently deceased uh, Daoud Hamdani. Daoud Hamdani uh, came from Indo-Pakistani background, came to Canada in sixty. I mean, just within my parameter, but I was able to tie a lot of things together. He came in sixty-five from I think it was Knoxville or something like that, where he's been a graduate student. Arrived in Memorial University out in Newfoundland. And there were three Muslims. I mean, the only, he only knew three Muslims. But I used him as to kind of my easternmost uh, thing. But his, his study, what he did uh, was that he, in the 1980s sometime, when he, I mean, he was a, an economist for the federal government, he was asked to do a speech one time and you know, talk about the Canada, Canadian Muslims and their origins. He, said he really didn't know. And he said, well, I got to do something about that. And so he started looking at the archives in Ottawa and the censuses, Sensei, Sensei, and eventually found the word Mohammedan. And he called somebody over to the microfiche and said, you know, what does this say? And they said, yes, it's Mohammedan. And he was able to pin down a handful of people whose names were John and Agnes Love. And this is in, for some reason, in 1854. Uh, or that's when they arrived at any rate. And, you know, one or two families, then another family, the Simons, came from the state. But again, the name, Love or Simon, but as I've discovered in working, doing this book, all sorts of names were given to Muslims when they came. Because for one thing, they were unpronounceable. I mean, Abdul so-and-so, what, what, are you immigration officials? Well, that's too long, or I can't say that, or you can't write it, so we'll call you John Smith. And so uh, here's Agnes and John Love. I have no idea, but they came supposedly from Canada, uh, sorry, from Scotland, uh, where my family came from. And, um, but, you know, they may well have been, again, early travelers who decided to, uh, they got to Scotland and somehow got a name. Uh, it's, more, it's probably more likely that rather than that they were early converts. I mean, there were converts in the 19th century to Islam. Um, but at any rate, they, they came out and then they started. And then by 1871, when there was a census, uh, right, you know, the few years after Confederation, if you imagine Confederation Canada, what it was like then, um, mostly wilderness, right? And not even a complete country at the time. Uh, they came out, and uh, by, by 19, 1871, there were 13 of them, and then they started adding up. And so what Hamdani did was he started going through the census reports and figuring out and estimating and so on the Muslim population. But again, you know, by the First World War, there were, I can't remember the number off the top, but, you know, six or 800. Uh, the numbers were slightly smaller after the war. I don't know whether whether people from the Ottoman Empire went home or changed their names or gave up being visible because a couple of hundred of these uh, so-called Turks from Brantford, Ontario, were uh, sort of rounded up in 1914 as being, you know, enemy aliens and sent off to a work camp up in northern Ontario for a few years to uh, keep them out of the way, you know, just like the Japanese after they during the Second World War and so on, and the Ukrainians and goodness, so who else? People from the Austro-Hungarian Empire who were not welcome again in the First World War. So anyway, the, the numbers grew, uh, but they were never very big. And as I say, by the 1950s, uh, there were maybe 5,000 or so. I mean, not very many people, um, but they came into into a country and of course then they spread out because what they were doing is they started off as peddlers 
probably with no language, somebody would set them up with a big pack full of buttons and bows and bits of material and shoes and goodness knows whatever they might sell. And they would go from kind of one wholesaler to another. Uh, and But they also followed their tracks. How in the age before the much the way of telephone, uh, certainly no cell phones, no nothing, no social media, how they were able to trail each other, they would find that, you know, out in Lac La Biche, there is a relative, you know. And so this young man who may by then have learned some English would somehow get him his way all the way out to Lac La Biche. And there certainly they were trading with the, the Indians, the native population is a kind of trading post. And they, the so-called Arab trader uh, is were scattered all over these little things from the outposts of uh, the outposts of Nova Scotia to the west coast and up to the north, and they would establish. First, they started off as peddlers, uh, like the picture on the front of the book, you know, guy with the horse and cart. But then they would make some money, and they would be able to set up a store, and then they would start going on from there, trading with whoever, and then they would get bigger stores, and. Uh, one of them, Alex Hamilton, his name was, he became Alex Hamilton because he had a long Lebanese name. And they, they somebody said, just give, you're Alex Hamilton. You're not going to be able to do the rest of it. And um, so I remember there's a picture of a photograph with a big sign, Alex Hamilton across. And he had amazing stories. I mean, he came over as a uh, 1904, 1905 or something like that. I was lucky to in interview him in 1979. He died in the 1980s. I mean, just amazing struggles of people uh, who either farmed or traded uh, and so on. And these were the people who eventually, when they got enough people, again, not very many people, but in scattered areas, they would start an Islamic association. It was not their first goal. I mean, they came here to make money, to escape the Ottoman draft or the Ottoman military army draft was a terrible thing. And secondly, the poverty of, uh, of, of Lebanon, so they, uh, what became Lebanon, uh, as well as Albanians, other, other, and Bosnians. I mean, there were other Balkan people who also came and who we knew in our early days in 1950s Toronto. Um, but they came over and they established themselves and uh, that's, that's the way it, it went. It, it, it's interesting stuff though, always struggle, struggle, struggle. I think it's fascinating to think about name changes, particularly and what challenges it presents for us to document the history of Muslims in, Can in Canada or North America. And this is particularly the issue with a lot of the first um, um, in, um, peoples who were brought across the transatlantic ocean from African countries for the slave trade, right? Many were Muslims yep. and their names were changed. And so part of that becomes um, trying to understand um, who were Muslims and how they practiced their Islam, especially when name changes were enforced upon them. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the interesting aspects of the book is also that a lot of the stories that you tell center women's voices, which I think is so important. Um, women were the leading leading figures and kind of establishing mosques and community spaces. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And maybe, you know, perhaps one or two stories of women who stand out to you as being influential? Yeah, sure. The, yeah, I think the, the, I mean, I'm no sociologist, but I suspect that women are in many ways are the carriers of the culture. Mm -hmm. And so whether the young men, uh, you know, then did well here and then either married somebody locally, you know, some, some Canadian, uh, or they sent home then, or they went home back to Lebanon, back, back to the Baca Valley in particular, and they would marry some, some relative, you know, it was kind of an arranged marriage, but I guess people knew each other and the expectations of those days, they, you know, we're into love marriages like ourselves. but So I think women do carry the culture so that they would, again, the knowledge of most of the people who came to Canada, again, they were villagers, basically, right? Villagers from Lebanon or from the Balkans with no very great Islamic background in them. They may have learned a certain amount, but really not very much. But uh, so they came with this thing. It's only later that they kind of picked up from 
various people or experience enough to learn enough to be able to kind of set themselves up and, and get on to, you know, mosque building and associations and I mean, taking their religion seriously in a sense. Um, so, but the women were important. And one of them, my favorite one was, was uh, Hilary Hamden, who was born in 1905 in Lebanon, uh, married one uh, Ali Hamden, who was from up, he was up in Fort Chippewan in the north and the north of Alberta, far north of Alberta, a trading post. And usually there was people, as somebody said, you know, there's the, the RCMP officer and the missionary and the Arab trader. You know, that was the picture kind of you got often. And so Hilly, Hilly's story, um, I mean, she talks about her hardships and so on. I mean, I mean, you're traveling by dog sled with children. I mean, her babies in her kind of sleeping bag kind of thing by dog sled through the snow for days and days from the north to get down to Edmonton, a place like that. I mean, just an incredible amount of hardships in their lives. But she, uh, the, the story that I liked about her particularly was that um, the, the Islamic kind of thing that I like, she said, I was always very strict about my religion. There was a Catholic mission in Fort Chip, as it was called. And one of the priests said, it would be a shame that I should go to the fire of hell because I wasn't Catholic. And he still liked me so much, but he said it was too late for my husband. I asked him if the key to heaven was in the Catholic's hands, and he said to me, it was. I told him I was very sorry, and I was brought up in a very strong religious family, and I thought heaven was open to anyone who was good, no matter what their religion they were. Uh, I could never accept any religion except Islam. The other priest uh, at the mission told me, never mind, he liked me as I was. He said I was a beautiful person, and I would go to heaven in spite of everything. Uh, I was in Canada for five years before I saw a Muslim woman. I mean, that's the kind. Of, uh, but she goes on. The, the, they should, in 37, uh, she now had half a dozen children. Um, and they decided, and they'd made money. I mean, he had done had done well. So they moved down to Edmonton. I guess he kept the trading port and they had boats and trading boats, all sorts of stuff up there um, in the far north in Fort Ship. But anyway, they had a meeting and there were only 22 people. And I'll maybe paraphrase this, this story. Well, anyway, he, they had a meeting uh, to discuss whether they were gonna have a mosque or a hall or something. There was a very small number of people there. Um, and uh, anyway, I attended this meeting. This is this young, youngish woman in 37 in Edmonton. Uh, I attended the meeting and three people wanted a mosque and the rest wanted a hall. I told them if they wanted a hall, they could use my house anytime for parties. Our home was always open. Our president said we were lost, but I told him, no, God is with us. I spoke up and told them that I was the youngest there and I was so hungry to hear the words of Allah. I told them, we have got to know our religion ourselves and God is with us. I spoke up, I said I was the youngest there uh, and I was so hungry to hear the words of Allah, I told him, we've got to know our religion ourselves, to believe in it and to know it, and we've got to teach our children. The motion to build a mosque was carried and passed the second time. The president was not convinced the mosque would be built, but I told him that if God wanted us to build a mosque, he would give us a helping hand. I saw the mayor, John Fry, about purchasing a lot for the mosque. There were two lots. One was in a poor district and the other one was $1,110. All we had in our organization was $50. Uh, I convinced the mayor to give us the lot free and told him he'd be the first mayor to open a Muslim mosque in North America. And then she traveled all over Nova, you know, all over the Western provinces, um, raising money and the, and what's his name? There was somebody, Abdullah Yusuf Ali, the 19th or 20th century scholar happened to be passing through by chance, and he kind of officially opened the mosque in 38. But a remarkable kind of story of a of, of woman in that case, particularly active. Um, I, I like that story a lot. And other places, women were very involved in the organizations, but um, 
tend, tended to be the supporters. It would, they were the people uh, who would, you know, make, make the suppers or provide the food and so on, so that then their husbands, the, you know, the men could then hold their meetings or debate what to do and how to form an association and so on and so on. So women's lives tended to be more restricted in that sense. Uh, they weren't so much as, as Hilby was in the front lines, but they were obviously there because they, I mean, the remarkable women of all these varying interesting ethnicities, a number of whom are still our friends or were our friends until they died, because this is a history and a lot of these people are gone. Um, so that's, I mean, the role of women is very, but, but some of them, um, and I wish, you know, if I had to do it over again, which you won't get a chance at 86 to do, I would have interviewed a number more people now that I only kind of heard about as I was doing interviews with their children, you know, I, so I wish I'd got your mother, you know, um, because remarkable women who uh, carried on businesses, their husbands might die, but they would, there was a woman in, uh, in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, who ran the, the, the family store for 36 more years. And she became a kind of pillar of the community. And here was this Lebanese woman of no education, no nothing when she first arrived kind of thing. All sorts of interesting stories, and I would do more of that, but I didn't and couldn't at the time. Yeah, well, you've done so much already, and I think it's fascinating how in different waves of migration from either from the, the Ottoman context or the South Asian context and going up till now, um, each kind of community had different kinds of leadership and gendered authority that was emerging, right? And I think um, Hilwi's story always gets me of just the just the ability to just go out and raise the money. She organized communities, um, Muslim and non-Muslim, and got kind of this job done. And um, we always think of the first mosque in Canada and the fact that it's so tied to the leadership and the organizing of a woman, I think is also the story that needs to be told with that, with the first mosque that was built in Canada. Um, and yeah. I love that. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, the, yeah I mean, they're remarkable, remarkable women were in, in these things. Uh, I was going to say well, one I might have included in here, uh, Talat Muinuddin, for example. Muinuddin uh, came, uh, original Muin Muinuddin, came from Pakistan uh, to be a teacher, and he taught out in Edmonton. He duly met another Pakistani student, uh, Talat, um, who had come out to do chemistry or biochemistry, something like that. Anyway, they duly married, but they ran and started encouraging kind of Pakistani associations and Muslim associations out in Edmonton, and then they moved to Toronto. Uh, and then he, he was the great ideas man of the kind of 20th century Muslim organizing. organizing. I mean, he was a, a real, I think the real man behind that Council of Muslim Communities of Canada. He was the man who suggested this or we suggested anyway, the idea of this book and so on. And his wife was very active and she eventually became the, the, uh, the president of the, uh, Council of, the, the Canadian Council of Muslim Women, which my wife was executive officer of for a long time. Um, I mean, also there are lots of interesting women and one could, uh, could do more on that. I'm, I, I regret I didn't do more. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there'll be a book on uh, Canadian Muslim women in history one day, right? Yeah. Inshallah. Well, there is one. I mean, it's called at my at my mother's feet. The CCMW did put a book out. It's is again interviews with a number of people. Uh, so there is something out there, but it's a smallish book uh, put out by Sadia Zaman, I think, for CCMW. Mm. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it's great. I'll have to check it out. Um, I have to say one of my favorite stories in the book, and I know we've talked about this before, is the story of Malcolm X. And, you know, just the years of, and I think it's just great because we often don't think about Canadian Islam in that way. And we have an association of a Malcolm X with American Islam. And I know he, he visited, but I think his visiting on the story you tell is also important for us to start thinking about like a particular Black Islam in Canada as well, and what the legacy of that here is, both through migration, but also with Black communities in the Canadian context. So can you share a little bit about kind of like very nonchalant experience you had in Malcolm X? Kind of well, I mean, it is, it is a, a very major thing. And it's 
Oh, always effective, but I, uh, well, what happened anyway, I was working for the, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in uh, television public affairs. Um, although, yeah, at, 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 in, in Toronto, again, this is in 1964, late 1964, and a friend of mine who worked on some other program said, oh, I know you're a Muslim, and I think there are only two of us. I mean, I imagine there were two of us in the CBC. Mm -hmm. The Sayyid Bukhari, uh, who's there, and myself, I, that was it. I've never known of any other Muslims in the CBC. So imagine, I mean, today, you know, the Muslims on television and everywhere. But yeah. in those days, you've got to think of it as a long way back. So in 64, anyway, he had come to appear, and you can see it on YouTube. You can put up Malcolm X. Uh, ask, you know, on, on Google or whatever it is, and he is on YouTube. I'm not good about these things, but you can find him. Anyway, he came to be a mystery guest on a program called Front Page Challenge. And so in the kind of period, they had a kind of a, a panel of, of newspaper people uh, who would be guessing who this guest behind them would be. Uh, from answers. So anyway, they had to do a kind of sound check and so on beforehand, so-called rehearsal to see how this actually worked with the guests and familiarize them. And so um, in, in the interim, then I, my, this friend of mine said, he's here. So I went over and I said, I'm Murray Hogan, the Secretary of the Muslim Society of Toronto. Uh, are you going to be staying? No, he was going back to New York that night. Uh, if you ever come again, would you come and talk to us? And he said, yes, he would. So some time later, and the chronology is very bad because I had no papers left because everything went in the fire, etc. But anyway, he did come back and as promised that he was going to speak. So we had him in for supper. Uh, my wife made supper and we had a handful of people in uh, to our house uh, in, in Toronto. And um, we chatted and we, I mean, the terrible thing is that we didn't record it nor did I record that speech because nobody had reporters then. I mean, it's not like now. Nobody had tape recorders. I didn't even handle as a CBC person a recorder until 1967, by, by which time he was unfortunately long gone. So, uh, but anyway, he came for supper and we had a nice chat and my wife said, you know, I think he had nothing, he only had daughters. And so she said, well, that was a great blessing because the prophet had daughters and so on. And we knew he was a marked man, and he said you know, he couldn't get any insurance and so on because he was a marked man. But it hadn't yet happened. Mm -hmm. So we had this really, you know, a nice conversation, a bunch of us sitting around talking. But we were just Muslims talking to other Muslims, and I'm a very friendly guy. And uh, we just talked and so on. And then we bundled him into a car and took him out to our little Islamic center, the Muslim Society of Toronto, as it was. Um, and he spoke. And if he'd asked what I, we wanted to talk about, and I said, well, we don't need to know about the, you know, the, the black man struggle in America. That's not our issue. We'd like to hear about the, you know, the Hajj, because he had become, kind of become an Orthodox Muslim. So he told us about the Hajj and whatever else. And I, we, somebody took a picture, and the picture, which is in the book, I made this little, we have got, for, we, this was early days. I mean, this was a paper, a paper print of, you know, an Islamic uh, inscription. And I put it in a little coals frame or a big coals frame, uh, but we didn't have money and getting a, a you know, getting a, a print of an Islamic inscription was again in 64, big thing, you know? So that was our little present to him. We couldn't do anything else. And uh, he was then squeezed into my brother-in-law's Volkswagen Beetle and taken off to what was then Malton Airport, now Toronto International, uh, and went his way. And then within, I don't know, a month or something like that, uh, a month or more, he was assassinated in in, uh, in Harlem. Uh, and and I, in between, the house was burgled, and I think I suspect it was the police or the uh, RCMP who hadn't yet figured that Malcolm X was not a, an issue. Although, you know, I mean, there may still be an issue, you know, given, given the way people think sometimes in official circles. But uh, he kind of came and went, and I used to get very choked up seeing the, the tail end of the film. Remember, there's a very nice film by, by Spike Lee, 
and you never, because it's all done with Denzel Washington, so you never see Malcolm X until the last credits. And it always choked me up because there was one of him in this fur hat and this long black coat with a fur collar. And I say, that's the man who came to dinner, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to, I'm telling the story now without being really choked up, which, which is fairly rare. Um, but he was a great man and we were touched by him. And uh, unfortunately, <sighs> he's gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but I'm, my regret is that we didn't record it. Nobody took notes. Uh, it just didn't, we were busy doing it rather than thinking of it as history, right? Mm-hmm. He was still alive and he was, you know, but nobody wrote it down. Mm-hmm. I didn't certainly. Yeah. My One of my big regrets in life and what can I do? Yeah, no, but I mean, you're here to tell us a story and I think that also matters. Um, and I'm getting choked up listening to you partly because the story is so powerful, you know, to, to know that you had this encounter with Malcolm X and this, mm. he has this important history also or moment of encounter in Toronto. Um, and, you know, who's not moved by the story of Malcolm mm. X, right? He ins- continues to inspire in so many ways. Yeah. Um, I think you telling us that story is important and then seeing the picture in the book is also so important as well. Yeah. Um, but it is also a great reminder of us to continue archiving, you know, like what's the balance between yes. archiving and archiving the stories yeah. of our parents and our grandparents and, and what yeah. our lives are, but, but also living life, right? Like what's the balance between yeah. that? Um, Cause you don't know what needs to be archived until it's too late yeah. sometimes. Right. Um, which yeah. is, seems like what you're doing in this book. Is yeah. Like any kind I, of- yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't yet at that time have that sense of history that as a, when I did eventually become a historian, it would have made sense to me. But at, at the time, you know, we were just being Muslims doing what we needed to do or forming this organization. And, and, you know, my wife was teaching the Sunday school and that kind of thing, you know, we were just living. Mm-hmm. We weren't kind of thinking in pos- terms of posterity. Mm-hmm. We didn't think he was suddenly going to be dead. And when he was, mm-hmm. that suddenly kind of blew the whole thing in larger than life. But, Mm-hmm. You know, he was a he was a nice man, but to say, you know, a nice smile. But to say, it's it's so funny that you know we didn't have this kind of halo around him. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah, the humanity of Malcolm X is also yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something so beautiful about that that you are just in his presence and just were in relation mm-hmm. with him and not thinking beyond. Mm-hmm moment right and yeah that's awesome um for our listeners are there some other things you'd want to um tell them about the book that you haven't already I mean hopefully they pick it up and can read all through the fantastic stories that you have included and voices you've included but what would you like listeners to know that you haven't already mentioned well well, I just there are a couple I mean in in these various interviews you'll find for example that uh as I mentioned to you the the amount of sort of Islamic knowledge that these people had was fairly limited. Mm-hmm. And so what it was, for example, women who grew up in, in who were born in Canada and grew up here uh, back in the 20s and 30s and 40s and, and probably 50s, uh, had, was a kind of very literal kind of, very strict kind of approach to Islam. I mean, the parents may not have known a lot about it, mm-hmm. but they said, no, no, you've got to wear you, no long sleeves, I mean, no, no short sleeves. You can't go to the rink because there may be boys there. And this was haram, etc. I mean, they're very suspicious. So they had really kind of restricted lives, really sadly restricted, and weren't encouraged to go on to edges school schooling. You know, public school was probably enough, and, uh, and that came often. Uh, some went on to university. It depended. Uh, but uh, anyway, r- women's lives were often very restricted. Another interesting thing is that the the sort of so-called issues of Sunni, Shia thing didn't matter to anybody then. We were just, anybody who was Muslim, you were welcome and was fine. Uh, it didn't come until later when larger numbers and after in the late 60s on, then you get more people. And then you could start to get more ethnic mosques and they start to divide up over issues of, uh, you know, religious issues, degrees of modernity, uh, ethnicity, uh, sects and all sorts of things those kind of came later but earlier on we were all kind of pioneers together you know we just we just did things together and it it was it was good you know yeah yeah and it's also, it's also ahead, in the in the fact that many of the 
the Muslim communities started all um, allying with others who are also minorities, like the Jewish communities, right? Mm-hmm. So, and in so some instances, since there's not enough Muslims, you know, you end up um, being the other with the group of others, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're already on the margins of society. Yeah, Seeing those yeah. stories of um, intercultural alliances, particularly with the Muslim and Jewish communities, um, or even in some instances um, with the first kind of Muslim settlers with the indigenous community in terms of trading, yeah. stories mm-hmm. are really, really fascinating too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are really interesting stories. Yeah, they really, and I say the, the Muslim traders had the same kind of uh, experience as, as the Jews, for example, with the same history. But one thing should be said, pointed out that the Muslims were again a minority of these people coming, particularly from the Balkans and so on. The Muslims were a minority in, in, in certainly in the Lebanese case, uh, the Syria Lebanese. I mean, most 80 or 90 percent apparently were Christians. Right. Uh, who, of course, settled in more readily because there were churches that were familiar to them. Muslims came with nothing, uh, and there was no infrastructure to receive them. Uh, and so they would uh, be, be, be you know, in Quebec and, and, and Ontario, other places, to get married, for example, early Muslim couples, you had to go to get a, find a minister or a priest who would agree to be say, okay, I'll marry you. You know, because that, and in '65, for example, in Quebec, uh, it was a big deal when they found out they could get a, uh, a kind of private members' bill in the National Assembly in Quebec City. And there's a photograph of a delegation of them, Rahman, um, Mumtaz Rahman, and other people formed a delegation. They found this and they went to Quebec City and they got civil status. So before that, you couldn't get married. I mean, you were you were a non you know, Islam was not recognized as a community. Now, Quebec is still a problem, uh, as you all know. Um, it's still still not as welcoming for all sorts of interesting reasons as it should be. But at least in 65, for example, they got there. Uh, there are all sorts of stories that could, yeah. could go on forever here. Yeah. Yeah, and the listeners will definitely have to pick up the book because I think, you know, you cover such great range in terms of like, you know, Nova Scotia to British Columbia and just such a great diversity of uh, diasporic communities from Guyanese Muslims to South Asians mm. to, you know, um, Albania. So just amazing voices that you've really centered. And I think this will be a great resource for, for students and folks who are interested. And hopefully more and more work like this is done, which is documenting the stories of Islam and Muslims in Canada. I think this is this is a great model for all of us to follow. So thank you, Marie, so much for being with us today and for your time. Is there anything fun that you're working on these days? Yeah, are you working on another project? Are you relaxing? <laughs> well, I, I, I've, I've given, given up the, uh, the Islamic subject for the moment. It's kind of dominated me for some years, as you can tell. So at the moment, the only thing that I'm doing is I'm working on a civil war battlefield or a battle story that I'm particularly interested in because of one man who managed to have the gumption to hold together a disaster and to help turn it around. But that's purely for my own little group of friends in the Civil War Roundtable. Yeah. But uh, no, I'm not doing any more Islamic stuff. I mean, you, you, you think of things, but but I have no, I have no real project, no. Right. Yeah. Thank but I mean, you. obviously, you're a community resource, so folks can come to you for questions and things like that, it seems. And so you're- I guess. One, one of the things one, one should, I, I should have mentioned earlier, is that the Muslims are a kind of fractious people. Uh, we we're, we're not perfect by any means. Anybody thinks we are. We're, we're no better than anybody else. And so we often divide up. I mean, in my early days, even in the 1960s, in, in the Muslim community in Toronto, that suffered a big division mm-hmm. over issues. Uh, and all of them do. And that's why I was thinking of Malcolm X. I mean, he got killed because the original group of the, the Nation of Islam uh, and possibly the FBI decided that he was too much of a menace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's happened, all, all there are a number of stories in these in the book about different communities which kind of split up and they had problems and outside groups would come in and try to take them over. And uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's difficult being a Muslim because of the outside pressure of the, you know, Islamophobia. And, and secondly, because of the wide divergence and sometimes rather dominant attitudes of certain uh, 
certain groups who are much more literalist, much more, uh, what's the term, traditionalist, whatever. Uh, whereas if to survive in this country, we a lot of us tend to feel we should be much more moderate in our, in our approach to, and, and we're comfortable being that way. Mm. We're, we're not living in Saudi Arabia or the Gulf or something or Pakistan. We're here. And uh, we hope that we can uh, we can figure our way out and, and survive here by by you know understanding this community. We need to reach out to it more than we do. That's one of the important issues from a number of people, including a woman in Ottawa, actually two people in the Ottawa chapter, that we really need to get out and not just build mosques or start you know youth groups, but get out into the community, be known as you know, that Muslims are people working on the hospital boards, or they're working here, they're volunteering there, whatever it is, you know. And so we do have some very fine examples, people who got involved in politics and uh, medicine and all the rest of it, you know. Mm. We have to get out from ourselves rather than being down in kind of our own little rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also seems like maybe this will be part of the history that will be told in the future of this particular moment and that uh, Muslims in Canada are kind of at the crossroads of. Uh, but it also seems with more diversity of Muslims and more concentrated population, be- there's new issues that the community is facing, which is very different from the first Muslims who came, let's say, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the yeah. 20th century, right? There's, there's always kind of new roads to cross. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, pleasure is mine. Thank you so much, Murray. Okay, Salaam Bye-bye. Bye. And that was my conversation with Murray Hulkman about his new book, Minarets on the Horizon, Muslim Pioneers in Canada. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, stay well and take care.